This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back. Take two uh, on this intro. Welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hey, Robert. On today's episode, we talk with Reverend Dr. Angela Gorell about her new book, What She Learned About Joy and How to Find Joy Among Grief and Sorrow. But first, Holly, how are you doing this week? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? I'm good. Just waiting for the the space junk that we were talking about from. I know. China, yeah, from that. I'm not going. Definitely going to edit that out. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the space junk that is falling out of the sky. But that's fine. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, twenty three yeah. tons or twenty six tons. It's fine. Something like it's that. Fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, you know, before it gets here, I guess what <laughs> what happened this week with y'all? Anything exciting? Oh, that's funny. Uh, let's see. We've had a few things happen this week, which have been good. Um, well, one, the weather in Texas has been so nice, and it has been just so nice to get outside with the kids more and more lately. So that's been a thing for us. Um, we had an opportunity to go visit Oliver's new school. He's going to be going into kindergarten next year. And so they do this little kindergarten roundup for the kiddos who are going to be starting kindergarten in the fall and get all yeah. the information and meet the teachers. And it was like a drive through like kindergarten yeah. roundup. So that was interesting. But yeah, but yeah, it's so fun thinking about him starting kindergarten in the fall. It's just wild. And then on the other end of the spectrum, I mean, today, actually, our students at the Garland School of Social Work at Baylor are graduating. So it's kind of sweet kind of being between these dichotomies right now, or these two ends of the spectrum, where, you know, I'm cheering Oliver on as he's about to start kindergarten. And I am celebrating our graduates who are launching out into doing the good work that they've been trained to do. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's been um it's been a great week. So yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a real about- circle of life moment there. I feel like we should yes. have the, the song going, right? Like, all right, I'll just be in the kindergarten and then all these students are going out of college. Yeah. I know. You know, but what's really sweet though is I do love, I mean, I love the season of graduation in general because um, it is so sweet to get to see our students like launch out into doing the good work that they do. But I always love, and I know we're not going to get obviously the same opportunity this year to connect with the parents, but that's one of the most meaningful pieces for me about the graduation ceremony and processes when I get to meet the parents and just to see this pride and love that they have for their kids and the ways that they have stewarded, you know, their lives and and mentored and uh, molded and loved these students. And then for me to know the students from the classroom, but then to get to meet the parents who have known these students their whole lives, it's just, it's really sweet. And it helps kind of keep things in perspective when I'm like, seeing Oliver starting kindergarten and thinking like, yeah, well, you know, I know that these years are going to go by fast. So I'm trying to cherish them 
to the best of my ability right now. So yeah. Anyways, but yeah, that's that's kind of what's been happening in the Oxhandler home. What about for y'all? How have the wars been? Good. Yeah. I think some similar things in terms of something's ending, right? Obviously, uh, the, mm. the school year for Brooks students at the, the ministry she works at is wrapping up, which is always kind of a, a fun and bittersweet time, right? Where she gets to kind of yeah. celebrate them and send them off and things like that. Uh, and then at the same time, kind of getting ready for uh, just what the summer holds for us and mm-hmm. uh, all the exciting things that will be kind of coming new during that chunk of time including getting uh you know everything ready for a new baby so uh you know lots of that kind of transition stuff and looking ahead and and things like that Mm -hmm. but you know yeah it's it's interesting it's always a little bit of a whirlwind feels like where a lot of things maybe going off the plate but then some new things coming onto the plate at the same time you know yeah um, a lot of that kind of tension Yeah. Yeah. The tension, the transition, the energy it takes to kind of shift in. But I also know that, um, I mean, I've definitely felt it myself, but I've also seen it with students and faculty and staff that like a lot of us are like crawling to the finish line at this point after this whole year. And I'm sure you and Brooke are probably feeling the same thing, knowing that you know, especially with Brooke's schedule, y'all really kind of work around like the academic calendar. And so, um, and certainly that's how it is in our home. But I feel like, you know, there is a lot of celebrating with wrapping up the school year and the transitions ahead. But yes, there is definitely a, you know, we made it with one big exhale. Um, Hopefully, hopefully. I know that that's not what everybody gets to experience. I want to be sensitive to that. But yeah. But yeah, the hoping that folks have an opportunity to exhale in the weeks ahead uh, is something I'm keeping my fingers crossed for. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of kind of holding this tension of like celebrating things, right, and mm-hmm. also kind of grieving the the loss of things and and moving on from things. Uh, that's obviously not like a, a, a an exact parallel, but right. I think a lot of those same kind of like how do we find these things in tension apply to our, our conversation today uh, with, with Reverend yeah. Dr. Angela Gurel. So I don't know, do you, do you want to tell us a little bit about that and at least, you know, maybe some of your, your reflections on it? Yeah, sure. Well, we had, as, as you mentioned, we had um, our, our friend, Reverend Dr. Angela Gurel come back on. She is a professor at Baylor University and um, she's at uh, Truett Theological Seminary. She is, She came on a little while back to talk about her other book, Always On, but for this book that she's talking about, it's much more personal. It is much more of her own story and the tragedies that she has had to navigate um, personally. And the, the difficult and interesting nuance of this was that she was navigating a lot of these personal tragedies at the same time as she was uh, charged basically to um, study joy and sitting in that tension of how do you study joy and how do you teach this class on life in general and then navigate the layers of grief that she had to navigate is just it's yeah. so powerful yeah I mean I definitely I'll, I'll echo a lot of that especially the way that she like you said uh, doesn't kind of set aside the joy or the grief right that that those right. are really coexisting and and she unpacks that really beautifully and so it's not kind of this like dichotomy where where you know well find joy therefore to like ignore the pain of it or or vice versa right but that right. she really gets into like 
how she was able and and learned over this time period right of like and and y'all will hear a little bit about it but it's like potentially the the wildest setup for like yeah. a story i've ever heard in my life um yeah and for yeah. it to be like a like if you wrote it fictionally i would say like this is come on this would never yeah. happen um but what she learned over that time period about joy and you know through her own process of grieving and things like that so i thought it i thought it was great i think she's great um and i'm excited mm. for our listeners to hear it yeah me too me too all right well we will get out of the way and let y'all listen to our interview with Reverend Dr. Angela Garrell. All right, enjoy y'all. Okay, today we are so excited to be joined once again by Reverend Dr. Angela Garrell. Angela is an assistant professor of practical theology at Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University. She previously served as an associate research scholar at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. She was previously on the show, like I mentioned, on episode 84, talking about practical theology and how we practice our faith in relation to technology and new media. Her second book, which we'll be talking about today, is The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found. Angela, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for for coming back on. Okay. Uh, aside from uh, the the formal bio, there is there anything else that our audience should know about you? Hmm. You know, I love hiking. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, going to the beach, all the good stuff that everybody you know loves to do outside. Mm-hmm. And I'm very, very excited. Like the whole world, that this pandemic is like that. The world is opening up a little bit. Yeah, I'm grateful. Mm-hmm. Very, very grateful. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Well, obviously, uh, this book is very different from Always On. This one is uh, primarily like a memoir, right? It even says a story of being lost and found. Always On was largely kind of instructional and and things like that. So can you tell us a little bit, obviously, about the the story or what led to the story that you tell throughout this book? Hmm. So... Yeah, they are. They're different in the sense that I think I wrote always on for Christian leaders to be able to guide their communities in thinking theologically about new media and what does it mean to practice our faith Mm. and given all the new technologies that we have. And then this book is a theological memoir. It is it's a theology of joy, but it really is written from a first person perspective. Mine. Um, I tell my story, but I tell the stories in in telling my own story. I implicate many other people and I tell their stories and to the best of my ability. And I got consent for every single person who is in the book. Um, If their real name is in the book, I have their consent. You know, they looked looked it over and said, yes, you're telling my story (laughs) um, in the way that I would want you to tell it. So, yeah, in uh, to just be brief about it, in March of 2016, I was hired at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture to study joy. And I accepted the job with great enthusiasm, (laughs) as one would imagine. First of all, it was a job post-PhD at Yale which was such an honor and really exciting. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) And then, I mean, the job was, hey, you're going to come and investigate joy. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. And so I spent the first eight months at Yale reading everything I could get my hands on about joy, really excited to be there and be a part of this team. And then eight months into the project, I got a text one week before Christmas that my cousin's husband, Dustin, had died by uh, by suicide. Um, no sentence up until that moment, no sentence had ever devastated me the way that that sentence did. And maybe to this day, that that's the, the case. Um, 
I was, yeah, in one moment, my whole sense of the world and faith and God, like sort of just everything became blurry. It was, it's very strange to look back and to think about that. But um, the next week was the hardest week of sort of care for family and friends of my life. Um, To care for Dustin's wife was very, very difficult to walk with with um, his parents, his siblings, the people who, you know, knew him the most um, was just very, very painful. And I remember getting back to Yale and thinking, you know, wow, how am I going to study joy and teach this class called Life Worth Living with Yale undergraduates? Mm -hmm. That was the other part of my job. Um, And then about a little less than two weeks later, I got a, a call from my younger sister that my nephew had died suddenly at 22 of a previously unknown heart condition. And found myself on planes again, going to Albuquerque, New Mexico to be with my oldest sister. It was her son. And then, I mean, all my sisters were there. Spent three days, uh, really, till four in the morning, most days, uh, most nights, uh, just grieving with her. Uh, It was so, so incredibly hard. Um, And then got back on a Sunday to New Haven again, thinking, wow, (laughs) how will our family recover from this? And then a couple of nights later, got a a message that my dad was in the ER fighting for his life. Mm-hmm. Um, went and taught life worth living for the first time the next day, the next morning, I think basically I was in survival mode and just couldn't even conceptualize what was going on in that moment. And I just, I mean, to be honest, I really went to bed thinking there's no way that my dad's dying this week. <laughs> um, and, but two days later I found myself mm-hmm. on three planes and in a rental car to go visit, to go see him. And I spent the last five hours of my dad's life with him. And my diet, my dad had um, used opioids for about 10 or 12 years. It's hard to say exactly, mm. but really significant, like very heavily used them for the last few years of his life. And it totally took his life from him. And he, his liver and kidneys shut down after years of opioid use is what happened. So I get back to, to New Haven and I've just spent in the last four weeks, I've just spoken at three funerals of three people that I love. Yeah. And it's my job to study joy and to yeah. teach a class called Life Worth Living. And this book is about that. <laughs> yeah. 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 I know what Holly was mentioning before we, we started, but the the vulnerability and the way you talk about all of that, right? This kind of, uh, I don't know, when I was reading, I, I, it seemed like some kind of weird cosmic joke, right? Like in, yeah. in the harshest possible way. Yeah. Uh, but the way that you write about that is so personal and just like how much of, of your own story that you share while also weaving in so much else is is just outstanding. And um, I mm-hmm. thought you did a, a phenomenal book. So just to write up front and say, I thought the book was amazing. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think even, I mean, the vulnerability of, of your own story and of these um, stacked, I mean, griefs, grievances that you've had to, to navigate one after another. Um, yeah. And then let alone like, the way in which you walk through kind of that back thinking of like with Dustin and like the, you know, oh, but we were at the beach. And like the last time I saw him, like he was tripping over, you know, on the way for us to get the picture taken. And then, you know, you talking about your dad and like how all those signs kind of had pointed to his addiction, but that, you know, there were ways that you you, you saw them, but weren't really fully sure of what was going on. And I just think all of those layers of vulnerability and hum- humanity, I think that's woven into this is just a gift. It really, oh, it really is. Yeah. yeah. 
not the grief. I, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying the grief is a gift that you had navigated, but just the way that you elevated like your honesty and hum- humanity was just, yeah, a gift. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no. I, I was just going to say thank you for, for saying that. And I just, I think when I wrote the book, I wanted to give a very honest portrayal of grief. You know, I wanted to mm-hmm. say, you know, I didn't want to leave much out, you know, and so um, I really I try to be careful to mostly tell my story of, you know, the experience of those four weeks and what it felt like to be me in those four weeks, because I know my family members would talk about different moments, probably you describe it in different mm-hmm. ways. But also, I really wanted to honor the year and a half of grief afterward. And to say that, you know, this yes. was a process like this was, this involved incredible fear of death. Like you don't lose three people that you love back to back to back, you know, so suddenly and not have a sudden fear of death, you know? And then I was very, very angry. I was incredibly angry and I wanted to honor the anger that I felt, which was that suddenly the world was different and the world did feel darker and it did feel incredibly unfair to have, you know, it felt incredibly unfair for Dustin's children not to be able to watch him age for them to not watch for him to not watch them age. It felt incredibly unfair for my nephew not to be able to get his first gray hair, as I say, to get married if Mm. he wanted to, you know, it just like, it felt incredibly unjust and I wanted, and it, so it made me angry and I wanted to, you know, and so a lot of that was where a lot of the grief was working through other fields. So there was tears, a lot of tears, but there was also a lot of fear and a lot of anger that I had to work through. And so I wanted to honor that, you know, and to really tell the story of grief. And it was my hope that in doing that, that other people would feel like they could tell their own story in a very honest, open way in small groups of other people or whatever that is. I was being interviewed a few weeks ago by someone on the radio, and he said that his mother died about a decade ago and that he found himself so angry, um, you know, in the years that followed And he had never connected the two. He had never connected that. Like he said, all of a sudden I became like this very angry guy, but it was not until I actually read your book that I realized maybe it was because of like all the grief because his mother had also struggled with addiction. And he was like, I didn't connect them. You know, and so I think unless we talk openly about how grief does involve things like anger, like there's other sides to grief than just crying, then, you know, people don't make, don't make those connections in their lives, you know? Yeah. That's so good. Yeah, I think of kind of the classic like stages of grief. And I know we've mentioned on the show lots of times that like that's not a linear progression. So if we could set that aside, but that so much of that, like essentially all of the human experience is wrapped up in grief coming out in yes. all these different ways. And so mm-hmm. the fact that you that you're talking about being honest about all those is is phenomenal. Yes. Yeah, that's so good. Well, I know throughout, well, and I do want to elevate too. I know you mentioned the the course that you taught and I swear as I was reading, I was like, I wish I could take that course. That sounds <laughs> oh. amazing. That, I mean, it seems obviously it's so serendipitous that you're teaching this course alongside, you know, these waves of grief that you're experiencing. What a beautiful opportunity for your students to have that course. But it sounded like in many ways that course also was serving you through that season as well. So I just, I wanted to elevate the beauty of that course too, that you talked about. Just as a professor, like I I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually teaching. I taught a course, uh, I just finished on Thursday. I taught a course this semester at Baylor. That's, That's uh, it's a version, it's a version of life Mm. worth living. It's called Jesus and the meaning of life. And Mm. we, uh, so we took the key questions of the life worth living course that I taught at Yale. I taught it at a prison as well. I've taught it on retreats. 
we took the key questions and we asked in light of the teachings and life of Jesus, what does it mean to lead our lives well? For, like, what should we mm-hmm. hope for? Yeah. What does it mean for life to feel right? How do we respond to suffering? What is the place of suffering in a good life? What happens when we fail? Um, so we asked these key questions, but in light of the ministry of Jesus and their papers were turned in last night. I'm so eager to read them. So they, they turned in their final paper is their vision of a meaningful, flourishing life. Um, oh, and every gosh. week we looked at like big topics. So we did Joy and Fear last Monday. They read my book the last couple of weeks, the previous Monday, Morning and Suffering. Um, we've done, you know, uh, we did a, a day on um, hope and forgiveness another day on peace building and violence. So we like looked at all these major themes of life and talked through them. It was an incredible semester and yeah, it was wonderful. Oh, I love that so, so much. My, my faculty heart is so happy hearing that. I love that. <laughs> well, throughout the book, you do talk about, you know, what you're learning about joy though, specifically while you're navigating all of these personal tragedies that mm-hmm. are happening. Could you could you unpack a little bit about what is joy? Maybe we could start there with understanding what this term means. Yeah, so there are multiple ways that I talk about joy in the book, um, sort of because, you know, joy is one of those things that the moment you try to define it, I think I say this in The Gravity of Joy, um, you sort of uh, minimize it <laughs> because it's so beautiful and so good that when you start, you know, when you become clinical about it, it almost you know, uh, takes away from it. But I, so I mostly, I tell stories about joy in the book, because I think that that's what a lot of us can relate to. Like if I ask you, Holly, like, you know, or Robert, like, what is joy? It would probably be hard for you to define. But if I said, could Mm. you tell me about a moment in your life when you experienced joy, that would probably Mm. be easier for you. So I mostly do it through stories, but I do have these sort of like moments in the book where I try to give, um, you know, some sort of definition to it. And one of them, I talk about joy is um, the ability to see beyond to the something more. So Mm. joy is the something more that sort of makes up life that Mm. when, you know, and we know like when we're in a space with people, when we're in the way of beauty, when we experience the goodness of God of the world, we, you know, we just sense, oh, there's something more here there's that's going on than like meets the eye. You know, I can't quite like touch it necessarily, but like I sense it and that fills me with, it's almost like it's very connected to also the feeling of awe, um, mm. you know, of reverence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I talk, um, and then um, another way that I talk about joy in the book is that joy is essentially the very, it's the presence of God. It's the very act of God ministering to us. And it's what we feel when we feel God's presence ministering to us. And mm-hmm. so um, whenever we give ourselves over to joy, we're participating in the very joy of God. Um, and then another way that I talk about joy is that joy is the feeling that, that follows the recognition of and the connection we feel to what is meaningful, truthful, beautiful, good, or our, our, our relationship to other people. And so it's not mm-hmm. enough just to notice meaning in the world or truth or goodness. Like we actually have to feel like it has something to do with our life to have that mm-hmm. effect, that feeling of joy. Um, yeah. But also mm-hmm. I'll say too that um, throughout the book, I describe different kinds of joy, healing joy, sobering joy, redemptive joy, uh, you know, exuberant joy. And so I think there are, it's modifiable in a way that very few emotions are, I think. And then finally I'll say that, um, joy is 
different from happiness uh, from my perspective because joy is circumstance agnostic. I think that happiness mm-hmm. is very much what we feel when we look at the conditions of our lives, our circumstances, and we think my life is going well. And so we look, you know, we, we look at the conditions of our lives. My life is going well. I feel happy. And that's a great feeling to have. But the beautiful thing about joy and the reason why it can be a companion to us during suffering is that joy is circumstance agnostic. It doesn't need particular circumstances mm. to be felt, right? So we can be in the midst of like amazing circumstances in our lives and feel joy. We can be in the midst of profound suffering and feel joy because we can still recognize God's presence in the midst of suffering. Mm-hmm. We can still recognize meaning, truth, beauty, goodness, relate to others in the midst of suffering. We can still sense the beyond, the something more in the midst of suffering. So for me, that's why joy is such a gift to us. Yeah. Mm, and I, I love the way that you're saying, okay, there's kind of all these different definitions, different maybe like angles at, at looking at the same thing that's really, really impossible to describe because you you write so much, obviously, in this book as we've kind of laid out, like you're studying joy amidst kind of these personal hells happening, right? That mm-hmm. that joy and sorrow can, in fact, coexist and, and actually might really uniquely be kind of a, a way to experience joy. So um, mm. can you talk some about that? And and maybe obviously as, as much as you're willing to share, you, you did just mention that like stories is also kind of a, a unique way of doing that. So is there a particular story that comes to mind for you that you would be willing to share in terms of finding joy kind of uniquely amidst like sorrow? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are multiple stories that I tell about that in the book. I don't know if you all want to choose. I mean, I could I could share Bright Sorrow, like the story of the star. I could share the story about sitting at the counter at Steph's house. I could tell the story of like a story from the prison. Is there one that you all liked in the book that you think I should tell? <laughs> I liked all um, of them. I'll be honest. So okay, whichever yeah. <laughs> one, that, yeah, whichever one yeah. maybe comes to mind that, that you resonate yeah. most with right now. Well, I mean, so I think that, so first of all, I do want to say, um, that Luke 15 for me, like if I was going to pick a text in the Bible that really testifies to joy, like that is an ode to joy, I would pick Luke 15 because, you know, it's the story of the shepherd who finds a lost sheep and then rejoices, the woman who loses a coin mm. and rejoices, the, the father mm. who whose son, you know, is gone for a time and returns and he rejoices over him like joy there. So in there in Luke 15, we find sorrow and joy very like, you know, closely um, tangled up together. Um, I actually preached a few weeks ago here in Waco at a church about joy and sorrow are often tangled up in our hearts. I think I was listening to that sermon actually. Was it, are you thinking of, well, you may have been preaching at a few. Are you thinking of the one at UBC? No, this was at Calvary oh, Baptist Church. Oh, well, yeah. I heard the UBC one, and that was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, at UBC, but, I talked about, yeah, Psalm 77. That's and right. How, mm-hmm. Yeah, and how oftentimes, yeah, and it does sort of, we like we can reflect on our lives and be going through a really difficult time, and as Psalm 77 mm-hmm. describes, and it's so right. honest about grief. I mean, the psalmist yeah. that wrote Psalm 77 is like very open about, hello, God, you are not here. I'm crying aloud to you. Where are you? And I love that so much. But then yeah. there's this turn in the psalm where it's like, but then I remember what you have done to for me in the past. Like I remember your faithfulness. I recall to mind, which is I talk about in the book, the idea of backward looking joy, what I call retrospective joy, which I think is very well demonstrated in Psalm 77. But yes, there are other places in the Bible like Luke 15, 
And then also in Ezra 3 that I talk about as well um, in the book, where joy and sorrow literally are residing like in very close proximity to one another. In Ezra 3, there's a bunch of people standing around watching a temple be rebuilt, the temple be rebuilt. And some people are weeping because they remember the, th the way that things used to be. And then there are other people are rejoicing because they're so grateful that this is being rebuilt. And then Ezra says, it's hard to distinguish the sounds of weeping from the sounds of rejoicing. Yeah. And I feel like that we all feel that even in our hearts, especially like in, in recent weeks, mm -hmm. I feel like with yeah. the pandemic, there's so much sadness over the last year. So many people have lost so much, you know, a lot of young people who missed out on a lot of like key things related to yeah. growing up that, you yeah. know, like graduations and like just special occasions and things, you know, a lot of people have lost someone they love um, in the midst of COVID. Many people lost their jobs in the midst of COVID. I think about yeah. India right now and what's happening there. Um, yeah. And just so many people who are losing yeah. their lives and them trying to scramble to get a hold on what's happening. And yet here in the United States and in other places, we're getting glimmers of hope because so many people can, anybody can have the vac vaccine right now over 16. I feel grateful that I'm fully vaccinated, for example. And so you kind of find that like, you know, but there are also what I realized was there are a lot of days in our lives that are like this, where joy yeah. and sorrow are intermingled. You know, yeah. the first day of kindergarten for a parent you know, the, your wedding day, your a funeral, right? You know, there's, yeah, and graduation, like that's going to happen next week um, here mm -hmm. at Baylor uh, or this week, excuse me, on Friday, you know, here at Baylor, mm -hmm. um, you know, like even like moments when you win a, a national championship game as Baylor did a few weeks ago, where there's just this sorrow and joy. So, I mean, you know, it's so intermingled that sometimes in our, even in our own hearts, it's hard to determine where one begins and the other ends, you know? And that yeah. that's what I what I realized in this journey is like, that's what it is to be human, you know, mm, is yeah. to, to just recognize that these two things often ride, reside together. Um, so basically what happened, I think in writing this memoir, this theological memoir, what I real I began to have illuminations about joy and especially its relationship to sorrow and its ability to be a companion in suffering in in hindsight in looking back and trying to make sense of the suffering that my family had endured. But yeah, one particular moment that just that, like it's an easy story to tell is just that we were sitting around Steph's counter um, after Mason died and me and my sisters and, you know, it's two o'clock in the morning. We have been crying for hours. Um, we are just eating whatever people people just keep bringing food, which is what people do. And so we're like eating off this mm -hmm. fruit thing. Like people set like a fruit bouquet. We're like eating chocolate covered strawberries. We're drinking wine. We're talking, we're crying, talk, cry, eat, talk, cry, mm -hmm. eat. That's like what we were doing. And we literally just sat around this counter for three nights straight um, and like didn't leave except, you know, like I say in the book like three times, but basically one night about two in the morning, we start thinking about, girl like we're talking about our childhood and we start talking about bbs and how our dad always like made us go to vacation bible school and um and then some one of my sisters i think it was Allie, but one of them said like started singing this song from vacation bible school like i am a c i am a ch i am a c h i s t i n you know and we just mm. all start <laughs> belting it out and it's Aww. like <laughs> we're just like like and you know it's been over 25 years for all of us, over 35 for Steph, probably, mm -hmm. you know, we haven't sang this song in a minute. And yet we're all <laughs> just like, 
belting it out and we're clapping along and we just start like laughing really hard. And it was like in that moment that I realized, like looking back on it, like, oh my goodness, it felt so good, first of all, to laugh in the midst of such a hard time. Um, and people need that. People like need permission to laugh when they're grieving. Um, yeah. But I just realized in looking back on that, wow, like sorrow and joy were like really together around that table, <laughs> around that counter. Like there were, we just went back and forth between them because it was such a joy to be with my sisters for hours on end too. So yeah, that's so, that's so good. I love how like the joy, it's almost just impulsive, how it just can arise at times. Like the example that you just shared around, you know, sitting around the table and starting to sing old VBS songs. I love yeah. that. <laughs> I was, I was thinking as you were talking though, so you're very clear that joy and grief can coexist, but I know, you know, for a lot of our listeners who you know, maybe struggling with mental health struggles or love someone who does, I, I do want to just maybe get some clarification that, you know, joy is not something that we impose on someone or that we tell them, like, just be joyful. Like, just to clarify, this is something that is, it sounds like from what you're saying, like, this is an individual experience that is felt, but not something that we would push onto other people through their grief. Right. Yeah. I think okay. it's, so this, thank you so much for saying this. And yeah. let me say a little bit more about it. Um, one thing that we found in our research that I think is important for listeners to know is that there is like the feeling of joy, um, which is what I was described. What I, all the definitions that I gave are related to the emotion or the feeling of joy that we can mm -hmm. get and we can catch it. Um, but ultimately joy is a gift. And I, you know, in drawing on both Jürgen Moltmann's work and Marianne Mai Thompson's work, a systematic theologian and a New Testament scholar, um, in the book, I talk about the fact that the word for grace and the word for joy in, in the Greek are very closely related. So it gives mm. the sense that joy is a gift mm. freely given. And yeah. so um, it's not joy. The, we can't manufacture joy. We can't make ourselves feel joy. And, um, and so that's an important thing to realize. We can be postured for joy. We can open our hands and, and look for joy. We can be ready for joy. And when joy finds us, we can give ourselves over to it but we cannot make ourselves feel joy. But there is a, there are other things too that we found, which is secondly, that, um, that joyfulness is a characteristic that some people have. They're just, they're the brains that they were given when they were born and their like life experiences just kind of tend, they tend to just be like the more joyful people in the world. And what's great about um, calls to rejoice in the Bible or to be joyful in the Bible are calls to y'all. It's a, it's a communal call. So it's not up to the individual entirely to have to rejoice on their own. Really calls in the Bible to rejoice are calls to a community as a whole. And so the gift of joy is that if you have other people in your community, like maybe joyfulness is not your characteristic and maybe you, uh, you know, but you surround yourself with some people that that is like one of the, their gifts and you have different gifts. You know, every, I feel like God gives all of us different gifts. And for some people, their gift is in the world is joyfulness, which is great, you know, but we just, but as a community, we come together and as we express our joy with each other, I feel like, you know, if I'm not experiencing a lot of joy in my life, the beautiful thing about joy is that it's contagious and I can catch your joy. It's infectious, yeah. you know? And so you can tell stories of joy. We can have an experience of joy together and we can minister to one another in that way. You know, also third, I want to say that joy can be a virtue in the sense that it can be a work. I think it could be sort of an aim in our life. We can kind of, so when I say we can be postured for joy, 
we can be the kind of people who say like, I want to be turned toward joy. Like I want, because I think how we're aimed in our life, what we're looking for, what we're hoping for matters, right? That's at the heart of life worth living or Jesus and the meaning of life is what's worth aiming your life toward. Like what's worth pursuing, what's worth opening your heart and mind and hands to, you know? And so joy for me is one of those things. So in that way, joy becomes a tell us a virtue of like, I'm aiming my life in this direction. And then finally though, joy that there is the the act of rejoicing, which we can choose, but we cannot Mm. choose it for someone else. Holly, like you were saying, Mm -hmm. we can't choose to rejoice and like tell someone else, Hey, you'd have to rejoice. Right. Because Um, but all of us can choose to rejoice. And I like the idea of, in the sense of like, we can look for good things in the world, beautiful things and choose to actively have joy about them or over them. The thing that helped me in the midst of the painful time that I was in, because a lot of times, like if you're experiencing suffering, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, if you're fearful, if you're angry, you know, the last thing you want to do is like, think about like rejoicing usually. Yeah. But my friend, Willie Jennings, he says that joy is an, a work of resistance against despair. And I think that when I can think about joy like that, when I can see it as a work of resistance against hopelessness, against meaninglessness, against the sort of voices in our minds that want to say, you know, no one can reach you. Your life doesn't matter. When I see joy as a work of resistance against those sort of voices that quiet and quieting them like that, I can get passionate about that kind of rejoicing. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I love it. I love it. That's so yeah. good. And I love that you, uh, you talk about this, not kind of as a dichotomy, right? But you even write about how it's important to lament and be honest and open about the things that hurt and to search for joy and meaning, right? Like it's not yes. this, like, you know, we, we, we reference yeah. spiritual bypassing oftentimes. Right. The show. That's right. It's not like that, right? Like just wallpaper over it. I did, I, I did also want to bring up, you write a line that, that I, I like pulled as a quote that anguish often follows aloneness, but joy often follows relatedness. And mm-hmm. in thinking about the way that you've talked about joy in all these different ways but at one point you talked about the ability to like to see beyond right or you tell lots of stories of people just showing up and and being there and having that Mm -hmm. presence as opposed to giving you some sort of answers or here's you know here's this thing an explanation right I mean the story of Job is like a classic example of this right can you talk some about that aspect of kind of the connectedness and and that being a, a factor in terms of finding joy or helping others find joy or, or things like that. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I do think that lament is a gateway to joy as well. And I do think that there are multiple gateways to joy. I think that hope is a gateway to joy. I think um, gratitude is, and also a cel- like celebrating the truth. Um, and so the ways that I, the, the way that I really see this though, like the way that it's possible, like to engage in these gateways to joy and then to become open to it is to really do it in community. And so thank you so much for quoting that in the book. I've, um, I think that is, a, it's a very important thing to see, to understand that joy often is about really rooted in this like deep connection with other people. Hmm. Um, and for me, it, it's absolutely the way that I began to open myself up to joy and to be able to actually even write about it because, you know, eight months into the project, like I said, you know, for the first eight months I was eager to write. I was reading everything I could get my hands on about joy. And then for about a year and a half after my dad died, a year and five months, I just couldn't even like to even imagine like really writing about joy myself was absurd and ridiculous. And I just thought, oh, what we're doing is probably is too trivial, too shallow. 
Mm. Like it can't speak to my family's um, situation. Um, Mm. And so I think it's important to say that um, the way that I got on the road to healing was through connection with other people. And it was in a space that we wouldn't normally expect. And that was, um, I became a volunteer chaplain on Wednesday nights at a women's prison. And I, I didn't realize it until a few weeks in, but I was assigned the women on suicide watch at the prison. And I went to their building on Wednesday nights. And then the overwhelming majority of the women in my Bible study were in prison for heroin or crack, like some sort of uh, breaking a law related to one of those two substances. Um, and so the overwhelming majority of them had been, had used one of those two substances in their life. Um, and it was in that room that I began to, it's, I tell, I talk about a few women, Jayla, Amy, that just as I began to hear their stories and to realize um, that their suffering was teaching me more about Dustin's suffering and my dad's suffering Basically, in that Bible study, I realized that my family's suffering, these women's stories, and the larger story of like what's happening in America today around our crisis of despair, and then my research on joy like had collided in that prison. And all of a sudden, I, you know, I had really felt like God was silent. I had felt um, like I was living in, you know, the fog of grief. And all of a sudden, in that room, it's like my vision like was restored. And I had something to work toward. And I thought, I want to make these women's pain productive. I want to make my family's pain productive. I want to make Dustin and my dad's pain productive. And I want to think about what does joy have to say to this crisis of despair? And um, But it was really like the reason why that room was so healing was because in that room, everyone was wholeheartedly themselves. And if you read The Gravity of Joy, you get to read about these incredible women that have overcome so much in their life that in their honesty, in their own lament, in their expressions of like humanizing one another, of just being so good to each other. It's just something awakened in me that had never, that would had like had never been awakened. My, and when I say like a story of being lost and found, it was these women who helped to restore my faith. And so it was a connection with other people that were willing to be vulnerable, that were willing to share about their lives that allowed me to do the same. Um, And also I'll just, the last thing I'll say is that in that room, there was no shame. The reason why the room had power is because there was no shame. You, I tell stories of like women Mm -hmm. who were struggling to write and then like, you know, people who sang off pitch people who forgot the words to things, people who talked about this part of their life or that. And it's like, no matter who you were, no matter what you had done, no matter how you like what, what you were like in that room, there was no shame. And that is Mm -hmm. so healing. If there's any gift that we can give to each other today, it's like create more spaces, more circles where people are deeply attentive to each other, where there is no shame. Yeah. So good. (laughs) <laughs> oh man sister <laughs> two episodes with tears from the oh. co-hosts this year oh i hear you and i'm i'm uh, wholly on board with you that if we could have more spaces where shame um wasn't a barrier for folks to receive and experience the healing that they needed i mean that would be the dream Right. Yeah. And well, and can I say too that just 
even and and this is the thing it's not relegated to like spaces like prison because here's the thing i tell a story in chapter nine of at the prison um one of the practices that we did is we would put a chair in the center of the circle and we would have and i would write different liturgies for the women and like we would that were like telling the truth to them like we're gonna speak the truth over you which as i was saying is a gateway to joy you know, and so one of the liturgies I wrote that I share in chapter nine is like I would sit a woman in the circle and like in the chair in the circle, and I read to them like you are a child of God, you are smart, you are beautiful, you are you know, and I'm like speaking words of truth into their life, and then they stood up and somebody else came and sat in the chair, and so everyone had a turn of having words of truth spoken over them and to them, and then also getting the opportunity to speak words of truth. In, like into someone else's life, right? It was a very powerful practice. This last Thursday for my very, we had to do a makeup class because we normally met on Mondays because of the ice mm-hmm. storm, we did our makeup class. Yeah. But, in the, but for our last class in Jesus and the Meaning of Life, I put a chair in the center of the circle and they had just read The Gravity of Joy. So they knew what I was about to do, you know? And I had a liturgy that mm-hmm. I wrote for them. And I started with one of my students and she sat in the chair and I said, your life matters to God and it matters to us. In Christ, you are free. In Christ, you are free to tell the truth, to be yourself, to live into your gifts. Like in Christ, you are free. And it was like this speaking this truth over them. And the last line was, you are free to live a life worthy of your humanity. Um, and so we all, we cannot, I think, underestimate the power of the words that we have, the power of our presence and the power of creating space where truth is told and shame is left at the door. Yeah. Oh, man. Gosh, I am so grateful for you, Reverend Angela Garrell, <laughs> Reverend Doctor Angela. <laughs> I'm grateful for your presence, and I'm grateful to call you a colleague and a friend, and I'm just grateful for this book that you have written for us. Hey, one thing we do always love to ask our guests, though, um, knowing that you poured so much into this book, I'd love to hear, you know, what is your hope for this work and for this book as it is launched out into the world? Absolutely. Thank you so much for those words. It's been amazing to be talking with both of you today. On our website is uh, www.angelagorell with two R's and two L's.com is a button that you can click where you can download a discussion, story, and activity guide that goes with the gravity of joy. My hope is that, because it's already happening, people are starting book clubs and small groups, and they're walking through this guide together. And what it is, is there are questions that help people to get talking about, they're telling their own stories of things that have happened in their lives, um, are their thoughts on joy, their thoughts on suffering, these sorts of things, but also story prompts that will help people to actually tell those, tell about a time when you've experienced anger, like righteous anger, or tell about a time when, you know, you've experienced unspeakable joy. And so operative ways of getting people sharing their stories with each other, and then also activities, which are all gateways to joy. And I created this because I wanted people to, like, as a companion with the book, to realize, yes, I wrote the book to tell my story, but with the hope that you will tell yours and that you, mm. and I wrote the book to tell you about the, the, the women in prison and our experience together to say, Hey, you can create experience, like a community, like the one we had with other people around you. And I hope you will, because I think this is what heals. Right. And so these, the sorts of activities and stories and dialogue that I'm encouraging in this guide, this is the kind of stuff that helps us to reflect on what we've gone through in our lives 
to make some sort of sense of it together, like for some, you know, and then all, or also to let go of any sense that we might need and say, you know what, there's no making sense of this. I'm going to let that go, you know, and just work through things together. Um, if we want to understand joy, it really is about, I think, getting together with other people and telling stories and talking through things. Um, and then, so that's my real, that's my, my first hope mm. is that people will, will create those communities together and really talk together and share and tell their story. And then the second is in the epilogue, I give ways to join the groundswell of people who are addressing suicide rates in the United States, the opioid crisis, as well as mass incarceration, people who are doing work in both uh, prison reform and prison abolition. And it is my great hope that readers of uh, The Gravity of Joy will pick one of these uh, three things and will do something and join um, in the work of amazing people who are doing, who are trying to reduce suicide rates, who are trying to end the opioid crisis, and who are trying to end mass incarceration. Mm. Gosh, That's so, so good. good. I wish I wish we had all day long because I was going to ask about those topics, right? Because you, you weave yeah. so much good research and information about all three of those those topics yeah. you just talked about within your own story. But um, I'll say, you know, if you're listening, make sure you go grab this book. It really <laughs> is great. If you want to connect with Reverend Dr. Angela Gorell, as she mentioned, you can find her at AngelaGorell.com on Instagram or Twitter at Angela Gorell. Mm -hmm. uh, you can buy this book, The Gravity of Joy, A Story of Being Lost and Found, wherever you buy books. You can connect with Holly at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at robert-vore-angela. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yes. Do you have any closing thoughts for our listeners? Um, well, I'll also say that it's on Audible and I read it to you. So if you're somebody who likes to have Ooh. the author of the book read to you, you can, you know, you can download it on Audible and, yeah. um, and I'll, I'll tell you the stories my, with my own voice. So, um, yeah, I just want to say again, thanks to both of you for your questions, for reading this book, for the work that you do week in and week out on this, on these very important topics. Um, I'm grateful for you to have you as a colleague as well, Holly. And, um, yeah, to all of you who are listening. Uh, may joy find you. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH podcast at gmail.com. A final note, if you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.